0: Grab your Bibles and turn to uh, Nehemiah 6. Nehemiah 6 is where uh, we're going to start today. Uh, We're going to end up in chapter 13. Um, That sounds wild, but we're going to make it happen. Um, Look, uh, this series has been really, I think, uh, personally, and I think to a number of you that I've spoken with, really encouraging to see uh, the life of God in His people, and what that looks like in the Old Testament. Now most of us in this room are probably not Old Testament scholars. Uh, we probably struggle with some of the language, uh, just some of the hierarchy, some of the things that exist in the Old Testament. And, and in this series in looking at returning, rebuilding, renewing, I think we've been given a better picture of what God's faithfulness, his covenant love, his steadfast love Looks like in the life of his people across generations, both before and after the coming of Jesus. Uh, so, to kind of recap where we've been, uh, this this idea, and we'll focus on it. We'll just use these three two, uh, these three words uh, as an example, as a picture of. What's going on in the life of God's people? God's people have returned to Judah and Jerusalem, specifically out of exile. We've seen that in the Ezra-Nehemiah story, that this all the prophecy that that took place about about Israel being taken captive by Babylon and subsequently Persia uh, and and then being separated from the land in which God has has really wanted them to be in, has called them to, uh, they come back. God allows through working through pagan kings and and just the incredible way that he's moving and shaping history for the preservation of the life of his people... All these incredible things are happening. The people returned to the land. We saw early in Ezra that in, by chapter 3, there had been an altar rebuilt. In chapter 6 and so on in Ezra, we saw that truly the temple itself was finished. And that we saw a people that consistently struggled, even in the face of God's goodness, all of his faithfulness to them, a people that struggled to trust, to obey, to recognize, to remember their God. Walking into Nehemiah, as we did a few weeks ago, we saw Nehemiah as one who exists. He's a contemporary they exists at the same time. And we'll see that some of that today as we look into chapter 8. But Nehemiah is one who is working for, he's a cupbearer too. Uh, he's a civil servant of the king Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And in the midst of hearing all of the horrible things that have taken place in Jerusalem... Uh, the wall being destroyed, this is a picture for him of not only a physical thing that's broken, but a people who are broken. And so the people of Israel are struggling. They are in despair, as the text says in chapter 1. And so Nehemiah is, has a longing put in his heart by God to go and restore this wall to provide not only protection and defense for the people of Israel, but also a picture of the goodness, of the awesomeness of God himself. So Nehemiah goes on that journey. We looked in the past couple of weeks of the the struggle to get to the place of building the wall and the place where he draws and assembles people around him in a servant leader type way. He brings people to this place where they come alongside and they long to build. They long to remember their God who is great and awesome, the God, the God who has had his good hand on them throughout all of history, even their own, in this moment, he assembles those people to do that, to build and construct the wall. And, we're, and it's nearing the walls in. And then last week we took at kind of a respite from the wall type story and a picture into the heart that God's people are to have for others. The call that he has put upon us to, to love neighbor. To care about other in the way that we care about ourselves, to minister to people benevolently from the financial means and our very lives. That's what we saw, and we come to this place today. And we're gonna wrap up this week in chapter 13, but we're gonna do this. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk a very quick narrative. So, this is why you're turned to chapter six. You're gonna look at it with me. We're gonna walk through kind of the narrative story of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 10, 11, and 12. That sounds nuts. But, but we're going to cover the basics of what happens here for the purpose of getting to what is one of the most unique and strange things that not only parallels Ezra, but is one of the, one of the harder things to deal with in Scripture. And it's this. In chapter 13, everything falls apart again. Everything comes undone, so to speak. And so we're going to get to that place today and figure out how we got there. And we're going to see this really incredible picture, this corollary of what it looks like to live in faithfulness and outside of faithfulness and how God's covenant love comes to us in the midst of both. So chapter 6, if you have it before you, you can kind of look down. and You probably have a heading that says something like conspiracy against Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah, like Ezra in his construction of the wall, has faced conspiracies, particularly from these three people, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. These are the people of different nations that are, are coming at him, that are assailing him, that are attacking the work that Nehemiah is doing in the Lord to build the wall. So there's all this conspiracy that's happening. And basically, they hear that the wall is not only constructed, that it's not only built, but it is not only, and not only finished, but so much so that there's no breach in it. There is no place of weakness or vulnerability. So you remember look back in Nehemiah 3, you saw all these pictures of all these gates. Remember Nehemiah riding through and looking at all the gates and seeing how desolate and how destroyed and how broken the wall was just in shambles and all of these places. Now there is no breach in this wall. The foundation is firm, it is secure. And so now his enemies are attacking him in such a way where they're asking him to come out. They're asking him, they're saying, hey, come meet us in this field. I don't know about you guys, but Nehemiah is like, I'm not bringing a sword to a gunfight, basically. is is kind of what's happening here. They're trying to draw him out to a place of vulnerability so they can harm him. And the wall, you see, is finished toward the end of chapter 6. And then Tobiah continually tries to write these letters then, these tactics to instill Fear, But the wall, as you see in chapter 7, is built and it's protected. And then you get this long list of people in chapter 7. How many people struggle to read genealogies? Yeah, me too. It's tough, right? So all these lists of names, they're not quite nearly as contemporary or modern as ours. Some of them are very hard to pronounce phonetically. Uh, it's, just, it's just a struggle to like, we just meander through these lists of names. And it's like, why are all of these names here? But one of the things that I love about Nehemiah 7 is the scripture really clearly says in there that God put it in his heart to write down the names of these people. Why would he do that? Why would God put a thing like note-taking into somebody's heart? Here's why. Because these people are the people who saw their God that was great and awesome. This is a list of people who were there. So when we look into a book like perhaps 1 John, and 1 John, that epistle really opens with John saying, that which we have seen with our own eyes, that which we have heard, this light in whom there is no darkness, as John writes and talks about Jesus, he's saying, you've got to understand that we, we've seen him, we've heard him. This is real. It happened before our eyes. In the same way Nehemiah is saying these are the list of people who saw the great and awesome works, the wonders that God did before his people. It's a history of God's amazing love and faithfulness to them. Then in chapter 8, you see Ezra emerge. Uh, he's been here. They're contemporaries. They're in the same time period of working together. Ezra comes and he reads the law to the people. So this is a real focus um, that, that really kind of correlates with what happened in Ezra, him reading the law, and then people confessing in the midst of the law who they are, what they've done in turning away from and not trusting the Lord. So Ezra comes and he reads the law to them and these people are confronted, the people of Israel are confronted with the law, the teaching of the Lord that they've been given. And then Nehemiah makes this bold statement that is kind of one of the the hallmark verses of Nehemiah. He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You get the real picture here that God's not seeking to have people just rebuild a wall. He's seeking for them to be rebuilt inside. For his joy to be that which drives them. The joy of relationship with him, of knowing him to be the thing that ignites their heart and causes them to find security and safety. To be at peace with God. Then you see the feast of booths takes place. The Israelites give up the comforts of their home. They all pitch tents outside Jerusalem, the city walls. And they're in this place where they construct these, these habitats that they'll have just for a week or so that's to remind them of God's faithfulness. And their wandering that they experience in the desert from Egypt all the way to Canaan, going to these places, going to lengths to remember God's faithfulness to what he has done for them. And then chapter 9, it culminates with them uh, confessing sin. So the people of Israel, they confess their sin. The law, the teaching of God, they're confronted with it. And naturally, they come to this place where they confess. And they say, God, we failed you. We haven't lived up to your statutes. We haven't been obedient to you. We haven't kept your word. And then this incredible thing happens in the midst of chapter 9. And if you have it before, you can kind of look before you and see. And there is this retelling in the midst of this confession, in the midst of this prayer to the Lord. There's this retelling of the history of their people. We're talking Abraham and Moses and the Red Sea, and everything that they've walked through, these huge moments, pillar of fire, the cloud, all of these things, how God has led them and never given up on them. And there's a phrase in there where it says, his steadfast love has been with him. In the Hebrew, this means, it means loyal love. In many ways, it is this, there's a deep connection to unmerited favor. To grace, this loyal love that continues to pursue someone even in, when they run away, even when they leave. This is a love that stays. You look back to Nehemiah one and you see the kind of the picture of what's happening here in these people. Remember in Nehemiah one, he starts praying to the Lord and, and talking about the the brokenness, the pain that he's experiencing for God's people, and he starts calling back out to God. The promises of God. Now, this people is doing this. They're saying these promises back to God. They're, they're recognizing their sinfulness and who they are. And this is a picture of who we are. In the midst of our sin, God is continually faithful. And then, chapter 10, and this is a big connection to how the book finishes and where we'll be today. Um, this confession results in an oath. In the same way that we saw marriages uh, dissolved in Ezra chapter 10, there's some things that happen where they're confronted with God's word. The people of Israel are confronted with the law, the teaching of God in chapter 8 and chapter 9. We see the thing that subsequently happens is their confession. They confess their sin and now as a result of that confession, they long to to be restored to newness. They long to promise the Lord and they're going to give three very specific things. And They're going to say, we're going to do this. We commit to you. These are the things that we promise, and these three things are what happened. One, they, they promise that they will not intermarry. Now I want to be very clear, and so hear me here. This is not this is not racial, this is spiritual. This is not about intermarrying. We we celebrate people of of, of different races marrying, and there's a beautiful picture of unity in the gospel. But yet, here, what we see is a picture of not intermarrying because you had people, the, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the, tons of people we're going to read about later on, even in the passage in 13 today, people that are bringing other gods into marriage. They're saying, hey, well, I'll, I'll marry this person that worships Yahweh, but, but I'm going to bring in this other stuff too. And this other stuff is not just stuff. It's child sacrifice. It's all kinds of horrible, horrible things, abominations, that the people of God should have nothing to do with. So the people say, we're not going to intermarry. Here's the second thing. They say that we're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to keep it holy. We're going to be people who rest and abstain from work on the Sabbath. We're going to keep that command, not surely to keep the letter of the law, but to live in the spirit of the law that God has created a Sabbath rest for us. And he calls us to enjoy that so that we can experience him in a deeper way, that we can experience life in a deeper way. They promise to keep the Sabbath. Here's the third thing. They commit to temple purity. They're going to help people that are a part of the temple and worship and God's family, they're going to empower them to experience the truth of who God is. They're going to do what they have in their power to give gifts, to give tithes and offerings and all of these things to help ensure that the people of God continue to hear and to know the story of God for who they are. All right? Chapter eleven, you get a big list of the people that are there when this happens. Chapter twelve, a record of the priests and Levites, and then finally in chapter twelve, you get a dedication of the wall that has been built. That wall that was was a dream, that was a vision in Nehemiah's mind of being restored. In chapter one, at the end of chapter twelve, it comes to fruition. And look, if I'm 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 no story writer here, okay? But like, if I'm ending the story, this is where we cut it off. This is the spot. God's people are living in a spot where they're longingly pursuing Him. They recognize their unfaithfulness. They're they're seeking Him. And then chapter 13 happens. And in chapter 13 that we're going to read today, you're going to see that all three of these things that were promised in chapter 10 are broken. Every one of them. Again. And we're really going to seek to wrestle with What does it look like for you and I when we live a life of broken promises? When we seek to continually be faithful to the Lord and then we continually fail? What do we do with that? And what are the things in our life that are really corollary, that are really similar to these three things that happen in chapter 13? All right, so we're gonna read chapter 13 together. It's long, but it's gonna be good. Uh, And we need to do this together so you can see the context of all these things and see this for what it is, not something that I tell you, but something that you see in God's word for yourself. You see his word. All right, this is Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 1. It says this, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah. And so, quick break here. This is that same Tobiah who's saying, hey, if you put a fox up on your wall, it's, it's going to fall down, and the wall's terrible, and, and he's attacking him. This is that Tobiah. So, Eliashib prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. "...where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king." And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. Stop right here. Remember in chapter 1, when Nehemiah is planning to go to Jerusalem, the, the king has granted his request, but there's this specific portion that says, hey, you can go for a time, but there's an appointed time at which you'll come back. There, there's some there's there's bookends on this. There's an end date. So, so Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem to go back to the king, and then he's coming back again, and then this is what he finds. This is what he finds. And came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurer over the storehouses uh, Shalima, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not... Our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city. Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And here's the solution. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And here's the close. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons. Or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves? Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a lot, but it's really, really important for us to see the context of what's happening here. And if you're like me, some of that story, and I've read it a bunch of times this week, are really, really challenging to plod through. I mean, in some ways, this is an object lesson about really what the Scriptures teach. Like, it's hard for us to sit and endure This one chapter of things that we really struggle to understand, and some of the wording is weird and the phrasing is strange. But the picture of God's people in their failing, just in a macro way, just big picture view, is that they fail to remember their God. They fail to remember their God. Perhaps they're bored, perhaps they're sleepy. There are all these things that are happening to them on a daily basis that are causing them to fail to remember God Himself, and you and I can identify because we just read one chapter, and I look out at us and we're just kind of like, we're getting there, we're getting there. All right, he's at fifteen. That's halfway. That's the halfway mark. I can see the end there. I know you're looking there, and I get it. It's okay. I'm doing the same thing to some degree. But you you trudge through, you walk through all of these accounts. It's hard to stay focused. It's hard to stay engaged on what God is doing in the hearts and the life of His people because there's these three specific things. These three things that are happening here that they promise in chapter ten, and this is the look. Never again, I promise. This is who we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. We're not going to intermarry. We're going to keep the Sabbath holy, and there's going to be temple purity. And then I don't know, a hundred-ish verses, we've torn it all up. It's over. It's broken again. If the people of God could understand, if you and I could understand why God calls us to these things, we'd remember and see him for his greatness, for his awesomeness, and we would long to pursue him. That's the good part. That's the chapter 10 of our lives. But in the midst of that, even divine pursuit and our sin and our brokenness, we will still fail and end up here. What's this look like for us and who we are? What do these three things indicate about you and me? Let's quickly kind of walk through this. Chapter 13, uh, these three very specific things. Um, one The temple ministry is forsaken. This is chapter 13, verses 4 through 14. 4 through 14. So there's this guy, Eliashib. He is a priest, so he is in charge of the temple. And and, and not just in an overseeing way, but he's ultimately administering opportunities for people to experience God. He's sacrificing. He's in charge of a place uh, that, that longs to show people the purity of Yahweh, his deep, steadfast, continual love for his people, and to guide his people into living in a manner that reflects that, that honors that, and brings before God true worship. And so here's what he does. He knows this guy, Tobiah, who has attacked and come after Nehemiah, and he basically, like, Airbnbs him, like, the back room in the church like that's effectually what happens here he gives this guy a place of residence in the church now this is not benevolence this is not some sort of philanthropic nice thing that he's doing he's actually as you can see the text removing all of these things that are a part of worship and how god has designed worship for his covenant people to take place all this stuff is gone So all of the grains, the oils, um, uh, the wines, all of these things that are meant to be kept in this room, in this chamber, they've been thrown out so that this guy who's an enemy can live here. This is the opposite of temple purity. It's the opposite of what God calls him to do. So look, he also looks in verse 10 it says this, I also found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had had fled each to his field. The Levites were the tribe, the priests that were called to teach the law. To instruct in the law and really conduct worship. Holy worship for God. Now the catch to being a Levite, that's holy work, that's incredible stuff. But you don't really earn a wage. You don't get money for doing that. You're dependent upon the gifts the tithes, the offerings that come into the storehouse. These things that are given so that that you can do the ministry. But instead, they're having to go back to fields and leave what God has called them to do because of the result of this impure action. All of these things point to the fact that these people, that these priests, that Eliashib is their example, people are coming into the temple and they're saying, Oh we can we can just like we can be partially devoted to God. When he gives that room away, when he makes this place that he carves out for something other than what God has intended, this is what he's saying with his actions. You come to the temple and you find a people who are mostly devoted to God. Mostly. Not fully, not completely. But, but, you know, for the most part. And God's heart is broken. Because these people are meant to be wholly devoted to Him. The temple ministry is forsaken, and these people are not devoted to God. Here's the second thing. Look in chapter, chapter 13 still, but verses 15 through 22. The Sabbath is forsaken. Nehemiah sees all these people, they're they're pressing wine, they're bringing in grain, wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. There's also the Tyrians who who are bringing in fish. They're selling them. All of this is happening on the Sabbath. This is the day of rest that God has given to his people. To say that these things should not be happening is an understatement. Why does God give the Sabbath? Now look, we see it in a new covenant way. But why does God give the Sabbath to his people? Here's the beauty of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, you embrace your limitations. You embrace your limitations. You recognize, you come to a familial awareness with, like you're, you physically know you need rest in order to live. Anybody done that like plus 40 hour a week, more than seven days a week job type situation in the world? Do you ever have the day where you just kind of broke down? You just could you you fell apart, you couldn't sustain it, you couldn't make it happen? Yeah, because you're not God. You're not designed to live like that. You're actually designed to live in a place where you are consistently resting. You know who's like really good at this? I'm pretty sure it's none of us. It's not me. I, this is a chief of sinners on this one. It's Very challenging for me to find rest and to embrace rest. You know why? The innate reason, I don't want to tell you this out loud. I'm less thrilled that it's being recorded. Who am I when I don't work? Who am I when I'm not ministering? Who am I when I'm not doing the thing that I think to some degree people would recognize in me and, or, or say, this is, "This is what you do, this is who you are." right? Let me ask you this question. When you go to meet somebody, what's one of the first things you ask them? What do you do? What do you do? Why do we do that? Why do we ask people that? Because it's an identity marker. It's a way for us to frame them. And part of that is we want to frame them that way because that's how we frame ourselves. Whatever I do, whatever action I kind of consistently live out, that tells me who I am. God gives his people... Not just you and I, but even Old Covenant, he gives his people rest to help them recognize that what they do is not who they are. Their identity is to be characterized out of the relationship that they have with God. That's what Sabbath is for. And they've broken this. So what does that mean? Okay, we're, we're a people that's not, that, that are supposed to be wholly devoted to God, but we're only partially devoted. Now we see a people who doesn't recognize that their identity is from God. So we're not wholly devoted, and our identity is being found in other places. And then here, look into verses 23 through 27, we see this. This marital purity that's forsaken. Now again, I want to be very, very clear We are people who celebrate people of different races being married and loving one another in gospel love and and choosing to walk with one another with the Father for a lifetime. That's fantastic. We love that. This is not a racial thing. This is a spiritual thing. The point is that that God would have his people be pure and worship him alone. And so there are all these people, these people, uh, the... The Ashdods, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, particularly listed in verse 23, these are people who worship other gods. This doesn't work with Yahweh. This doesn't work with God, that we bring in these other things. Oh, we'll worship you, God, but we're also going to worship this other stuff too. Because now, this is not just about the people of God in the temple. This is about my reflection to the entire world. Everybody that would know me in an identity manner would know my spouse, would know my wife. That's what life would look like in this place. So everything that I reflect, not just in the temple, but in my daily life, in every way I'm saying, hey, you know what? Like, I love Yahweh, but I'm also okay with these other things too. Some of which are really hard to say. We've talked about this child sacrifice, horrible, horrible abominations, sexual sins, all kinds of stuff This is not okay. So these mixed marriages, this isn't an issue of race. It's an issue of spiritual purity. And then you see the ramifications of it. Look at verse 24. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, but they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. This is really, really pertinent because for these people, the Hebrew people, they are communicating the very truth of God. They're remembering the story of God and what He's done From the promise given to Abraham. That covenant promise that God gives. To the passage through the Red Sea. The deliverance from Egypt. The wanderings. The struggle. And yet the continual faithfulness of their God to bring them to this land. If they lose their language, they lose that. They lose that. God is longing to... Help his story and help people see who he is and not persevere throughout history. If these children can't speak or can't understand, they don't understand steadfast love. They don't know chesed. They don't know the word because it doesn't exist to them. They don't know the language. There is no way for them to be able to experience and embrace and understand their God. That's the kind of destruction that takes place when we align ourselves with other gods. We lose not only purity for purity's sake, but the reality of who God is and what he's done for us. So today, as we kind of of wrap up a series on Ezra and Nehemiah, I find it appropriate to look to the end where we see... But the book doesn't end the way I would think most of us would want any story to end. It ends again with Nehemiah coming to this place of anger and confrontation against the people who continually fail time and time again. So what do we do with that? How do we connect? How do we relate to these things? Three specific questions I think would help us kind of see how these things could play out in our lives. Number one. You look at the temple ministry that's forsaken, how we're called to be wholly devoted to God, and yet often it's only partial. And I have this question for you and for me. What have we improperly placed in our hearts? What have we improperly placed in our hearts? And you might say, look, Michael, well, I haven't done anything that, you know, I'm not like secretly renting out a space in the back of the church for somebody to live that's an enemy of, you know, Double Oak Chelsea, okay? I'm not doing that. Uh, And I know that because I looked this morning after reading this passage. I just kind of want to make double sure. Um, But look, I haven't done that. But here in the new covenant is what we would say. What does Paul teach? What do we see in 1 Corinthians 6? That you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God's spirit resides in us. When we trusted in God, we surrendered our life, we believed the gospel. When we believed the story, the true account, what was seen, what was heard by John and others of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. We believed those things and trusted in him. This happened. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of us. We believe that the Spirit comes and lives inside of us. We are the temple, so to speak. Alright? So if that's the case. What do the storerooms in here look like? And what are the things that we've improperly placed that cause us to not be wholly devoted to God? The thing that that brings us comfort for a moment and yet leaves us empty moments later. The thing that looks like our balm, our comfort, the thing that we trust, that we run to, that's not God himself. The things that would characterize us, not just in a pattern of bad behavior, but in a pattern of brokenheartedness. Where we're lonely, we're scared, we're afraid, we're sad, we're dejected, we're we're disappointed, we're depressed, we're frustrated, all of those things. And we find this thing that would give it to us instead of giving it to the Lord. What have we improperly placed in our hearts? Here's the second thing. What are we doing to find life apart from God? What are we doing to find life apart from God? And that sounds like a really hard question, but I mean it in relation to the Sabbath. Man was not made for the Sabbath, Jesus would say, but the Sabbath made for man. So some people might take the scripture and you look and go to the New Testament and Mark and say, hey, look, this is the equivalent of the disciples plucking grains, right? Like they're I mean, it's really about the the spirit, not like not the letter. And I would say, yes, that is correct. It is about the spirit. But what's happening here is people who have completely disregarded the Sabbath. We're not talking about people just not following the law. We're talking about people not understanding the heart of God for his people. They don't get the teaching. They don't get the recognition that we are called to embrace our limitations on the Sabbath. The beauty of Sabbath rest is you get to recognize that he's God and you're not. That you need rest. That you need to be restored. And that restoration not only comes with sleep or laying around or you know sleeping to the golf tournament or NASCAR being turned up really loud because it sounds like white noise and is a great to nap on Sunday afternoons. All right. It's not just that physical rest, it's spiritual rest. How do we know that? We know that from Hebrews 4. Because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. When we've trusted in Jesus, we enter Him, we enter in that rest, but we just don't stay there really. Why? Here's kind of the sub question. Like, I, I look around this room and I know a lot of you and I know what you do, and it's, like, it's really important. It's great work, it's work that honors the Lord, it's incredible stuff. I look around the room and see people that feed people. I see people that protect people. I see people that go on vacation and get bit by stingrays, and we're sorry about that for you. Um, I see see people all around this room that have these incredible jobs. They work terribly hard to educate people, to minister to people, to care for people. Here's a question. Who are you when you're not doing that? Who are you when you're not doing that? What's your identity? What's your value? What do you contribute? What makes you matter? Who God says you are. And the work that you rest from ultimately allows you to rest in the work and person of Jesus Christ that has lived for you and died for you and redeemed you. That's why you rest. Are we resting? Are we looking for life apart from God? And here's the third thing Where do we find relational identity? Uh, This is Jeffrey Bromley. This is what he says As God made man in his own image, as God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. So, when Genesis speaks of marriage, which speaks of Adam and Eve as, as union, it speaks specifically in this way of one flesh. This is a picture of relationally being united to someone in a way that reflects our relationship with God. Marriage is not meant to be like, you know, we should just have, you know, one set of taxes instead of two. One place of residence instead of two. One checking account instead of two. It's hard to have kids alone, so let's do it together. No. Marriage is oneness. It's union. It's deep togetherness. And that's supposed to reflect the picture, the incredible picture of God's togetherness with his people, of God's love for his people. So what we have here is this picture of deep relational identity. And that's a bigger picture of just our relational action, period, ought to reflect who we are to the world. We're called to be wholly devoted to God. And yet we're typically partially devoted, I would say. We're called to understand that our identity is from God and Himself. And yet often, we're trying to create identity for ourselves. In some way in this world. and we're called to be pure in our relationships, and yet often, we take on relationships that even not just expose us to, but perhaps even produce in us idolatrous practices. Those things are trying to become one with us, and we struggle to fight against it. What do you do with the story that ends this way? Now, you know the canon of Scripture, and you know the story doesn't end here. But at the same time, in a history, and a narrative, in a people that have walked through all of this, what do you do with the picture of it ending this way? I would write it a different way. But I think the beauty in this is that this is a picture, not just in an old covenant way, but in a new covenant way, of our experience of faith. Because some weeks, we live chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. We're confronted with God's Word and it draws us to confession, and we recognize who he is, and we, we state to him. We, we, in our heart, we well up with the remembrance of his awesomeness and all that he's done. And then it leads us to this place where we say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to love you. And then yet again, we end up over here, and we're not wholly devoted. And our identity comes from other stuff. And we mix the goodness of God with all this just other stuff. And God just becomes one among many, rather than being everything. And it plays out in our relationships, our picture to the world. What do we, what do, we do with that? What if that's your week? What do you do? What if this is your week? What do you do? It's the same thing for both. Ezra and Nehemiah's story gives us the picture that we will be wanderers, that we will be faithless so often, and yet God will be faithful. So, in the moment of my faithfulness, you know what I do? I preach the gospel to myself. And that's what you should do too. You preach the gospel to yourself to let you know that that righteousness that you've lived out is only ultimately because the righteousness that has been imputed to you, that's been given to you in Jesus Christ. And that true righteousness is that which comes out of confession and recognizing who he is. And it draws you into that place where you long to give your heart to the Lord. And ultimately, too often you end up over here. And you do the same thing over here. You preach the gospel to yourself. You preach to yourself that while, while we are sinners, Christ died for us. You preach to yourself that if we, if we confess our sin, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You preach the gospel to yourself. Ezra and Nehemiah is a beautiful picture of God staying the same God's covenant faithfulness and our struggle to maintain faithfulness to ultimately recognize we can't be faithful and that Christ had to come for us so now we get to cry out and instead of saying remember my God for my good we get to say remember God Jesus Christ His life, his death, his resurrection for my good. We have to believe that gospel. That's powerful. So, our worship team is going to come um, and we're going to take a moment to respond this morning. Probably hard in some, there's a lot we've covered today, but this is the crux, this is the big picture. That we're people that struggle to be faithful. And, but you also might be in this place this morning where you're like, I'll be honest with you, Michael, we're in a pretty good spot. And that excites me. I'm excited about that. That you are consistently loving, trusting, following the Lord. The only way to not turn from that is to continually remember him. To continually preach that gospel yourself. And I would ask you in this time, look, we... Um, it's musical, so we're singing. but But... Paxton and this team are ultimately, through melody and words, helping to preach this truth to us: that everything is bound up in Christ. So, in these moments, um, it's a call to think on those things. Are we, sorry, I'm in the way. Are we, um, are we going to be people? Are we going to be people who find identity in ourselves? We're going to be people who who live a life of, eh? I'll be somewhat holy devoted to God, or people who really love the Lord and are going to longingly trust Him. I don't know what that looks like for you this morning, but we need to take some time this morning to respond to that. So whether you sing, you, eyes open, eyes closed, you stand, you sit, whatever, take this moment to respond. I'll be here to receive you if, if you'd like to pray, uh, and the altar is open for prayer. So let's pray together.